Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. For the next 12 weeks, our discussions will revolve around the topic of housing and house prices with three subtopics. The first will be root causes, followed by an evaluation of current policy responses, and finishes with alternatives to current policy and thinking around affordability. For today's program, we were lucky enough to talk to Brad Lander. Brad is the comptroller of New York City, where he is in charge of making the best investments possible toward a more sustainable and resilient New York. As we've heard over the past two weeks, housing and affordability problems are quite complex, and the situation has generally just become pretty messy. Public policy and government is one part of the institutional entanglement. Calibrating our tools and conducting the correct evaluation is important to creating sustainable development. Mr. Lander is a former community organizer and nonprofit leader. He began his career at Fifth Avenue Committee, a nonprofit that builds and develops affordable housing. After 2009, he became the director of the Pratt Center for Community Development, an institute in Brooklyn, New York, where he focused on developing communities, sustainability, and affordability. Mr. Lander has been a harsh critic of the New York City tax system and, coming from a nonprofit, has different ideas for how to fix it. As comptroller, Brad has tried to amend the system in order to create more resilient communities. Together, we discussed how the current system of unaffordable housing was created, how taxes can improve or worsen the situation, and what his office will be working towards for the remainder of his term. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Uh, first of all, let me say thank you for inviting me and for accommodating my uh, my schedule. It's it's good to be with you, and uh, I'm sorry that I wasn't uh, able to just join this panel from the from the beginning. I will try to come back and and actually conclude in some ways with talking about some answers to David's question and the role of community land trusts, things like New York City's great Mitchell Lama program, which I think are uh, models of social housing that actually get at some of what he's addressing. I mean, I'll start with the caveat, you know, I'm, a, I'm an elected official, a politician, and we sort of deal in what works, both politically, what could you actually do, and then from a policy point of view, what would make things better, and sometimes that can distance you from very good, more theoretical or analytic thinking. That said, I really am enjoying this sort of, you know, Georgist moment, maybe, and I, my sense is on the call, you've got some, like, traditional Georgists, some Yimby Georgists, and some Marxist Georgists. And uh, it's uh, I'm enjoying kind of uh, watching that, even if it's not the place I'm mostly steeped. You know, I've spent my whole career thinking about, quote unquote, the housing problem in New York City. But even just in my lifetime, it has really shifted what that has meant. You know, I started working in housing in New York City in the early 1990s. When in many ways, a lot of neighborhoods were still grappling with the overhang of, of the abandonment crisis. You still had quite a lot of abandoned uh, city housing. So there really was, for many people, an affordability challenge, but for many other people, a conditions challenge, living in housing that in neighborhoods with so much abandoned housing and just an inability to live in non-lead contaminated, basically safe uh, neighborhoods uh, and how to think about that. 
as I started my career working at the Fifth Avenue Committee, we were really on the sort of front edge of gentrification. So not yet in many ways a broader affordability crisis where the large numbers of middle class uh, and certainly working class families could not find an affordable place to live, but something a little more targeted. Tenants, working class folks in neighborhoods that were being gentrified, being pushed out of neighborhoods that they had lived in uh, and all kinds of new development bringing attention to those neighborhoods. So a kind of more specific gentrification crisis after an abandonment crisis. And now I think we really do have a broader affordability challenge where it's not just specific neighborhoods, but across the marketplace and not just genuinely like low-income families who can't afford housing, uh, but, but a very broad swath of working class and middle-class New Yorkers. So even defining the housing problem, you know, is, is a bit of a challenge. Uh, and of course, if you look back at New York City, uh, more historically, you see that as well, right? New York City begins working locally on what should municipal housing policy be, um, uh, in the settlement house era, really in, you know, kind of in the latter half of the 19th century, uh, at, with the first set of tenement reforms coming in 1879 and then strengthening them in 1901, uh, when people were really looking at at conditions, were horrified by the conditions people were living in uh, and trying to think about how you set regulatory standards uh, that require just the basics for folks. Um, you know, uh, but after decades of that, there was clarity that, okay, it's good that the old law and new law um, set some basic market standards, but you still have so many people who can't find basic, decent, affordable, adequate housing. And so New York City is on the leading edge in this country of a government role in providing housing. I think a lot of folks on this call know that New York City stepped up and started engaging in public housing development before the federal government. Uh, first houses on the Lower East Side were actually a, a New York City and, and philanthropic initiative before the federal government gets involved. Lots of that between the 1930s and the 1970s. I'll come back in a minute to New York City's kind of a couple of things New York City did in particular, like that Mitchell Lama program that I think we need to come back to today. Um, but obviously, since the 1970s, the government's role in directly producing housing uh, has, you know, was undermined and badly constrained by uh, neoliberal policies since then. And while New York City has continued to provide public sector capital for affordable housing, we have not strengthened the kind of public option role uh, of expanding the footprint of housing outside the speculative marketplace. Um, and what we've mostly done is incentive created incentives for for-profit private developers uh, to build housing, uh, much of it market rate and some of it uh, affordable. Um, and that creates a whole series of challenges. You have to battle them for the what the affordability will really be. You have to fight to make sure it isn't taken out of affordability at the back end of the system. Uh, and especially if you're doing it through um, public subsidies and tax breaks offered to for-profit private developers, you worry that it's simply going to get capitalized into the value of the land, um, something I know a lot of you on the call have given a lot of worries uh, to. One of the things for me in particular is I've spent like tw the last 20 years kind of fighting the white whale of this big tax break called 421A, 
uh, uh, a tax exemption, essentially, for for-profit private developers to build originally multifamily housing with no affordability requirements, and then adding in some affordability requirements over time. Uh, and on the one hand, you know, if you ask a developer, they'll tell you now without that tax break, which the legislature allowed to expire last year, they can't build uh, anything at all. But I think if you do kind of an analysis of really what has happened over time, you know, however much of a tax break you would give would just get capitalized into the into the land prices. Um, you know, so it's a little bit of a of a never ending cycle. Um, let me say a few things about just what I think New York City ought to be doing at the moment. Oh, I guess one more thing before I just jump in and give a couple observations about what I think the important next steps in New York City housing policy are, and then glad to go back and take some questions and engage with some of the other folks on the panel if they're still there. Um, one thing that I do think is really important um, and that I think is, is challenging to figure out how to knit with a Georgia's perspective uh, is the attention on um, land use policies and its intersections with our housing policies. Um, and I'll say just a few things here. One is obviously like what New York City's whole special sauce is, is the density uh, and the diversity that we have. Uh, and we are lucky in New York City, like what drives our creativity, what drives reasons people want to live here, what drives um, the, the whole raison d'etre of our city is to be a place where lots of people live and can live um, and to try to make it as diverse by income and in every other way as possible. Um, that's part of what's so worrisome about the affordability crisis driving out uh, working class and low income people and you know all the stories about black families who have been in an exodus from the city. Obviously the history of African-Americans in their contributions to New York City's uh, history, culture, business, economy, creativity, so central. Um, but we got to be thinking about that, right? We want fair taxation. We want, you know, fairness. But I think we also want to promote um, the kind of density and diversity that our city's been lucky to have. That is not easy to figure out how to do. Um, uh, in, a, in a capitalist economy where if you drive value up, um, it's really hard to keep individuals of very diverse incomes uh, living near each other. That's not what American real estate policy mostly does. Um, I don't even know that it's a goal of most places, but it really is um, not just a goal for New York City, but it's kind of like existential raison d'etre, and we need to be uh, paying attention to it. And therefore, I do think fair housing policies, policies, yes, absolutely. Um, tenant protections, rent stabilization, good cause eviction, things that enable people to continue to live in a place as values rise around them, 100% critical. Policies that actively promote, um, uh, uh, that confront histories of exclusion and promote inclusivity really matter and they're not so easy to do so so let me just say a couple of things about you know what i think we ought to be focused on moving forward and then glad to take some questions or engage in some dialogue so you know i mentioned that 421a uh, uh tax break that was the primary thing that for-profit developers have been using for decades it expired last year, and there is a big debate about what we should do, do it going forward. You know, my point of view on this is what we should do is have comprehensive property tax reform because New York City's property tax system is so wildly skewed to homeowners over renters, 
but also in just a weird set of quirky ways that wind up taxing uh, outer borough homeowners, especially black and brown outer borough homeowners, with a much higher effective tax rate than, uh, than me and other upper middle class white folk in, in attractive neighborhoods in Brownstone, Brooklyn, and Western Queens and Manhattan. So we ought to have a comprehensive property tax reform. Uh, bringing Georgia's principles into it would be super interesting to say, let's, uh, let's look at land value taxation. Let's incentivize affordability and multifamily development. But right now we don't even have just basic fairness, right? Like a simple flat property tax where everybody paid 1%, let's say, of the value of either their land or their buildings would be dramatically fairer than the thing we currently have. So um, we ought to fight for it. I'm fighting for it. I'm maybe a lonely voice on it, but I am not stopping. Uh, so that's number one. Like we need an approach to property tax reform. I'll give just one second idea on 421A. Well, two second, I two ideas more on 421A. One, because we don't underwrite that tax break, like on the one hand, it's a housing subsidy. And most of our housing subsidies, somebody underwrites and says, given the costs of what you're building and given the affordability that you're promising, that is the public benefit, we're going to evaluate what tax break you should get. But 421A doesn't do that. It just gives it to everyone. Uh, and so, of course, it gets capitalized into the land and winds up just going to speculative owners and sellers in a much higher volume that anyone should be comfortable with. So simply uh, a process of adding a layer of underwriting, get, you know, are you paying a reasonable price? Obviously big question about what that is, but you know, um, and then given the costs and given uh, the affordability commitments, uh, what mix of tax break and subsidies are you eligible for would promote a much better system than we have. And we really could do that. Um, we absolutely need to strengthen our tenant protections for all the reasons that uh, have been said here. Even if you believe what we need is a lot more supply, actually adding enough supply to make a difference would take years. And if you're not willing to protect low-income families in New York City from eviction and displacement into homelessness with some basic tenant protections like good cause eviction, hard for me to believe that what you actually care about is people's decent, adequate right to housing. Uh, and to me, that basic trade of pro-supply policies for stronger tenant protections and good cause eviction is such an obvious deal that Albany uh, should have made in this past session and needs to make now. And anybody who just, you know, like can't say both of those things, I get very frustrated with. Um, and then finally, I'll stop here. And then I see a bunch of other questions in the, in the chat that I'm happy to answer. But I, I really do want to focus on the need to expand the footprint uh, whatever you prefer to call it, social housing, housing outside the speculative marketplace, Mitchell-Lama housing. Um, you know, I think, I don't know, I actually was reading this interesting new book called The Public Option. Uh, this actually doesn't focus on housing almost at all. It's looking much more at healthcare uh, and higher ed. Uh, but the value of having, you know, I think in New York City right now, if you add it all up, if you include public housing, if you include Mitchell Lama co-ops, if you include nonprofit affordable and supportive housing, you get about 10% of New York City's housing units that are owned outside of for-profit private ownership. The difference it would make if we could say double that to 20%, you know, we still have a very mixed market. There'd still be a lot of incentives for uh, the building of multifamily housing. You'd still have a whole lot of housing options and types. 
but I think you would do something very useful in the marketplace, expand the set of people who benefited from it. And one big element of that, and I'll just end here, is to me, I think the most successful housing policy we've had in New York City are Mitchell Lama cooperatives. Um, that was the state and the city teaming up to take big swaths of land like amalgamated houses and co-op city and Penn South. Uh, and build multifamily cooperative homeownership with pretty significant restrictions on resale. I might allow actually a little more appreciation than the classic Mitchell Lama did, which really allows almost no appreciation at all, uh, maybe a modest appreciation. But, um, but you know, we ran this natural experiment we, where we built about 150,000 Mitchell Lama units, half rentals, half co-ops, and over half of the rentals have been pulled out of their affordability restriction, over 90% of the Mitchell Lama co-ops remain affordable cooperatives today, decades and decades later, despite the incentive of those owners to go private uh, because they would benefit, even though their kids or their neighbors might suffer. Um, and it is just a policy that we should revive today. And you could do that through community land trust. You could do that through another round of limited equity co-ops like Mitchell Lama's. That model of a ground lease and some ground rent while enabling tenants uh, to have some share of the ownership and, and decision making and appreciation. It's the only way I see that working and middle class families will have access to something like uh, home ownership in New York City going forward. So if we want any working or middle class families to really see that possibility. Um, and I finally think it's one of the only ways to persuade New Yorkers that density is actually good for them. As long as the idea of density is kind of in the hands of developers, I just think people will be suspicious of it. And so if you think we need more supply, tethering it to something like a new round of affordable multifamily cooperatives has a lot better chance of building a durable political coalition as well as creating something the market is missing. I'm going to stop there and I'm glad to have whatever mix of dialogue or questions we have time for. Brad, thank you so much. It's clear from your uh, comments that the uh, discussion of housing policy and the housing situation in New York City is getting a lot of time uh, and attention on the part of at least your office and other uh, public officials. I um, Before uh, we, we bring Angela, I'm sure Angela has a number of important questions and comments for you uh, and Mark Molyneux in as well. Um, I have a couple of things that I'd just like to put to you. One is, it seems to me, you didn't specifically mention the assessment uh, situation in New York City. Um, as a reference point, uh, a colleague of, of mine uh, was the uh, uh, chief assessor in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he told us that keeping assessments current was extremely important. Uh, and in fact, the, that the land assessment constituted 70% of the to total uh, valuation in Greenwich, Connecticut. I would imagine that New York City's land portion of the total assessments would be somewhat similar, uh, considering the fact that the value of a building is depreciation, is the, the, re the uh, replacement cost less depreciation. I don't know how accurate uh, New York City's assessments are, but maybe you can shed a light on that particular question, and then we'll let Angela and Mark uh, go at you. 
Yeah, this is a big issue. And I, you know, when I said basically we have a cockamamie system that is in dramatic need uh, of updating, assessments are absolutely a part of that. But the whole system is so warped um, that uh, the the assessment process is only a little bit of it. And I'll actually give you know one example here. The what I what I'm pretty sure you know the data says is the largest driver of inequity. Like if you look at the reason why um, the effective tax rate on my uh, row house in Park Slope is a third or a quarter as an effective tax rate as that in the Northeast Bronx or Southeast Queens, like largely African-American, you know, much less uh, high property value neighborhoods. The driver was actually something they did to be kind of thoughtful, which was to say, we're gonna put an, assess uh, uh, an assessment uh, cap, an annual increase cap, and basically yeah. say, you know, we're gonna hold down your assessment to no more than 5% a year, and in some ways, of course, that was like a lovely impulse to say, I'm sure in my in your neighbor in a neighborhood where property values are spiking, you have seniors on fixed income and we don't want to drive them out of their homes. And so we'll place this 5% cap on as a way of preventing people who are house rich but cash poor or you know, income constrained. But you know, you do that for decades and decades. And then neighborhoods like Park Slope, where I live, but many others in the city have had their entire values uh, repressed and their effective tax rates in those neighborhoods are much lower than elsewhere. So, so yes, I mean, we, but, you know, but that's an example of like, that's not a problem that the assessors didn't do a good job of like keeping up with my house. That was that we put in this, uh, this system of caps that warped the system over time. And then we also have this problem of that we look at co-ops uh, uh, like rentals uh, rather than like one to four co-ops and condos. We look, we evaluate their, you know, like rentals rather than like one to four family homes. We do a, a, a sort of income-based valuation effort. And so everything is just really warped. One example of that is that if you've got a piece of ground today and you're going to decide whether to build condos or to build rentals on it, you'll pay a third more in taxes for the rental building than you will for the condo building. So we, our tax policy is a, is an inhibitor of the building of rental housing. So anyway, that's a long answer to like, yes, both our assessment policies and the structure of property taxation really needs comprehensive reform. It'd be an intriguing idea to focus on land value as part of that rather than exclusively looking at sort of improvements value or total value, but just having a basically fair coherent system that tried to say, what is the market value of that property? And having a flat percentage tax rate would be way fairer and less irrational than, one, than the one we currently have. And you've pointed out the law of, of unforeseen consequences with regard to circuit breakers, that they have to be thought through very thoroughly. Angela, would you like to ask uh, your controller any questions or comment on his presentation? Thank you so much for being here. It was an amazing presentation. I guess one of the questions that I have in terms of the 421A, um, what do you like how would you respond to the people that I feel like that has been something that within the last month I've seen a few opinion pieces kind of going around that there needs to be consideration of some sort of replacement to that program I guess I'm just curious to get like what you how you would respond to that yeah 
two things. Uh, to the there's two different arguments people are making. Honestly, well, three arguments I'm making, two of which I'm sympathetic to and one of which I'm really not. The, the one that I'm not is just like it's come to stand for a kind of developer yimbyism. Like we just want to be able to build and anything that lets us, keeps us from doing it the ways we want to do it is nimbyism and should be blamed for the housing crisis. And there's a surprising amount of, maybe not a surprising amount of that, but that's kind of most of what is, is I hear in the debate. The two things I'm more sympathetic to are one, you know, there was a deadline last year and you were supposed to be able to kind of get in and, and file under that program. And now uh, for a range of reasons, mostly having to do with skyrocketing interest rates, hard for people to complete their projects in within that deadline and some reasonable extension for some of those problems might should exist. And I actually think that's totally reasonable. You know, I let, did a lot of work to help achieve the rezoning of the area around the Gowanus Canal to entitle the building of 8,000 new units of housing, 3,000 of them affordable. Bunch of those developers have compelling projects to me that I think are, are good um, and that they're gonna have a hard time completing on time. And some deadline flexibility for projects like that, I think makes sense and is worth figuring out how to, how to do. Um, in terms of what new program we should have, here are my quick ideas, because the old program was just a boondoggle. It was like $1.8 billion a year, for very, very, very little affordability. Increasingly, what it was for was outer borough developments, every single unit, the market rate unit and the affordable units, well above the price of, of the vast majority of existing units in the neighborhood, and with the affordable units set to only be affordable, quote unquote, to the 25% wealthiest New Yorkers. So just to me, like that program uh, was worth ending. What I would like to see is one, eliminate that gap I mentioned between rentals and condos on new development. We should not be providing an incentive for condos over rentals for new development. So equalize condo and rental tax rates for forward going development. I'd rather see comprehensive property tax reform, but if I can't have that, at least equalize rental and condo taxation going forward, which would reduce the, the tax rate on new rental property by about a third, if that was the way you did it, and help make it more possible to build multifamily rental housing at market rate with no subsidies in New York City. Second, for things in high value neighborhoods in Manhattan and Brownstone, Brooklyn, and other places like that, where the mandatory inclusionary housing model that like, you know, 75% market, 25% affordable exists, rather than try to say that all gets 421A exemptions, uh, submitted to underwriting by by the city's housing department. And if you can show you're building something, the reasonable costs of which compared to the affordability commitments you're making requires a tax break, then I'm open to giving it to you. But by underwriting it, you help prevent it all being capitalized into sale price. And you help address the problem that when you set a system up like that, you have to give as much subsidy as is needed for the subsidy neediest project to every single developer. And so you whisk, pump in way more subsidy that's needed, underwrite the deals and give the tax break that's needed for the cost versus the affordability of the project. That's of course how you would approach almost any subsidy and we could do it here. And then I don't mind doing it if it's that's what's necessary to get the affordability. And then third, 
for the outer borough neighborhoods where they have this program that I call the 130% of area median income program, which is to say the affordable units were not affordable to anyone below about the top 25% of New Yorkers. Let's replace that with a new version of the Mitchell-Lama program. Let's say what we'd like to see in the outer boroughs is that model of multifamily affordable co-ops. You know, a lot to say about what that really should look like. What income level? Is it a land trust model? But I'd be really happy to give a tax break to developers to build a new generation of Mitchell-Lama co-ops in New York City. I think people would accept a density bonus to achieve that. So you could probably get density bonus on those sites. I'm open to some additional subsidies to make it happen. Um, private builders are the ones who built those Mitchell Lamas in the first place, even though they then got removed from the speculative marketplace. So there's room for people to make money assembling, developing, and building those sites. But that goes back to this idea of increasing the footprint of social housing in, in New York City. Hey, Mark, uh, you have a question or comment for Brad? Yeah, I think in general, I, I definitely think uh, this is the attitude we need everywhere, which is just an all the above I mean, to, to have affordable housing. Uh, unfortunately, we we just need increasingly kind of uh, complex uh, instruments. And I, I definitely agree with the uh, uh, looking towards co-ops, uh, land trusts that build a lot. One thing I'm disappointed, the land trusts we have don't really have the same kind of growth trajectory we, we want. Uh, I guess the question I have is uh, 421A. I think you know I, I've I, I've I've learned a little bit from from afar. I did an episode recently, uh, but it's it's complicated. I get the general idea, which is uh, certainly based upon the tax and equity. You need to rebalance that to get any rental built. And I guess the, the very very broadly, I'm kind of curious about you know uh, is there are there more elegant ways is to push uh, development towards rentals if you take as, an, uh, as, a, as a given. I don't know offhand, this is kind of a, a broader question, like in Vancouver, as far as I know, they build 99% condos, almost no rentals. Uh, what policy made that happen? And you know what? how can we counteract that? Because I do fear that you know uh, every renter deserves you know basic protections uh, and that just you know that's just true. But if you do that and then have condos be more self-sufficient, the, the you know if you don't do anything else, it's just going to be all condos for for new builds. Yeah. And I, I wonder, like, if you were more blue skying it, what is the best way to do it? If four twenty one a is is obviously a bit of a hack. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm open to other people's ideas. You know, who have think in a little more blue sky context rather than just like the politics of the moment that we have. But I'll say a couple of quick things. First, I really like your first point about capacity in the social housing sector. Like the difference between American land trusts and European social housing corporations is like the difference between, like I don't know, like a mom and pop. You know, anyway. So. Um, so yes, we need to take that seriously and not just hand wave at it. If we want to have a new generation of social housing, we're going to need something like the social housing entities in, in Europe that produce it. And whether your model of that is something more like a social housing development authority or whether your model of that is something like, uh, you know, um, anyway, that's a, a critical point and, and, and we shouldn't. We, we, you can't hand wave at it. Like you got to build that capacity and not just say, I like to have it and then hope magically capacity to actually build it emerges. On your, your second point, like I just have been so surprised in the uptake of the proposal that we made on 421A because 
here I am, this like, you know, left wing, you know, long time affordable housing guy saying, the first thing I'd like to do is reduce tax rates on forward going multifamily rental housing by a third. And rather than developers saying, wow, that's great. The controller is saying that they're like, we just want back what we had before. And no, we don't even want to talk about this idea. So I feel puzzled by that because I know it won't be enough on its own to get deep affordability, but I just would have thought people would have said, great, thank you. We'll take that. Now, what do you want? What do we do next? And I have barely been able to get that out in the conversation. So I do, I'm, I'm really trying hard to push that and saying, before you figure out what you layer on as an affordability break, let's, and before you try to solve all of the problems with existing valuation, which are many, let's at least just set, solve that. But we could really do that. Like the legislature could solve that problem. And that wouldn't solve the problem of rental housing development, but obviously reducing rental tax rates by a third would do something in the marketplace and having them equal the condos. Um, I think your question beyond that, if you could really blue sky it is a good one. I'd be curious to hear what other ideas people have. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening. And we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.